most of my sermons are just uh, from godly men that I've read and studied and learned from. And today is no different. The reason I can see so far is because I, I stand on the giants have gone before me. Uh, Newton said that, and uh, that definitely uh, describes my ministry experience. So today's sermon is, uh, I had to give credit to the following people, and uh, if you want to continue this uh, study uh, on this issue, these are books that I would recommend to you. J.C. Ryle wrote a book called Holiness over a hundred years ago, an excellent book on practical sanctification, J.C. Ryle, Holiness. John Owen even maybe 200 years ago, wrote a book called Sin and Temptation. Uh, Somewhat of a more difficult read. I wasn't able to uh, go through the whole book, but very, very uh, insightful and helpful in explaining explaining what the Bible has to say about our indwelling sin and uh, the right approaches, strategies to overcome our indwelling sin. Um, Nancy Lay DeMoss wrote a book called Holiness. Actually, this was a book that uh, someone gave to my wife as a birthday present two weeks ago, and I was going through her gifts, and I started reading it, and I couldn't put it down. So an excellent book, written for women, but it was very helpful to me, so I'm sure it will be helpful to, uh, to you men as well. Joshua Harris, uh, not even a hint, a good, um, maybe a primer on the subject. If I were to start, I would start either with Ryle's book or Harris's book. Uh, Joshua Harris, not even a hint. And Randy Alcorn, a small book, Purity Principle, is very good as well. As you would have guessed, it's a difficult topic to talk about, to address from the pulpit uh, in the church. Um, I called my mom last night, just kind of to check up on my dad and his health and how he was doing. And she asked me what I'm preaching on today. And I couldn't say sexual sin. <laughs> so I just said, John 17, 17, sanctification. <laughs> And ended at that. Um, you know, it's a common temptation for us to overlook this issue and ignore it outright. As I'm studying through sanctification, I'm hard-pressed to overlook sexual sin, temptations of lust that is common to all men. But, you know, in our, maybe in our upbringing, we're kind of, um, that's the culture that we were raised under. And it's hard for us to talk frankly about this issue. I, whenever I talk about this topic, whether in premarital and pillars ministry, family ministry, I remember my first youth group and a junior high student who told me that um, you know, he was curious about this issue about sex, and he went home and asked his mom about sex. And we're like, what did your mom say? And his mom said, Korean people don't have sex. <laughs> that was her answer. End of discussion. <laughs> and that was it. Um, <laughs> After I uh, emailed all of you about the topic of our study this morning, got an email from one of you that said, Dear James, I know it's just like any other sin, but it is such a taboo subject that it tends to be glanced at or untouched, despite its ubiquitous pervasiveness in people's lives. I know of no other sin that is so chronic yet so neglected because of our aversion to dealing with it. Thank you for loving us enough to delve into such a difficult issue. I'm sure you're laboring hard in study and prayer to shed light and truth of the reality of sexual sin. I will be praying for you and your sermon, for your wisdom, discernment, and accuracy, the Spirit's hand in guiding you, for the congregation's receptivity, and for my own heart as well. So thankful for that, for understanding 
on the importance of addressing this issue and for praying for me and pray for all of you that our hearts be open to the Word of God on this important topic. You know, I know that it is a pervasive a struggle uh, for all of us that goes under the radar and often ignored and neglected. I know it is a common struggle. Personally, I know it is a common struggle because, you know, quite often I hear about pastors, um, seminary professors, ministers in the church uh, who are disqualified from ministry because of this very issue. I almost never hear about pastors being disqualified because of their temper or because of the, the gluttonous or because they're not disciplined. I mean, those are qualifications that are listed in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1, but those things really don't happen. I don't really hear about them, but I often hear about uh, really just seemingly godly, and I think many of them, several of them, godly men who have fallen because of uh, sexual sin. And in my pastoral counseling, uh, even ministering to youth students and all the way from six years here at Cornerstone, in my private uh, counseling sessions with many of you, I mean, how many times has this issue come up? How many times have we prayed over and labored over this issue, what the Scripture has to say, and the struggles that, that we go through in trying to um, be pure and holy and righteous in the sight of God and sight of men? Although it is a common struggle, it affects men and women differently. It affects men and women differently. There is a common misconception that men are monsters and women are holy and pure, right? So I think some men feel that way and some women feel that way, that why are guys constantly struggling with purity? And all of us girls, you know, we just play with flowers, you know, and we scrapbook and, you know, we memorize verses. And guys, their minds are in the gutter. What's going on? Well, it's, it's the same struggle, but men and women struggle differently. And, um, you know, Genesis 1.26 tells us that God created men and women. He created them both. But He created them you know, with the same soul, same essence, same standing before God as believers, a value and worth as well. But in terms of how they deal, especially with the sin, it's quite different. And I didn't know how different men and women were until I got married. I mean, that really, you know, eye-opening experience, getting married, how different guys and girls are. Uh, you know, my wife loves flowers. She has flowers all over the house. It does nothing for me. I look at flowers and I mean, there's n- I can't even create emotion to like have some kind of response towards flowers. But just flowers make my wife happy. She likes, she likes flowers on the wall, real flowers, fake flowers, flowers in our you know, sheets, our towels, you name it. does nothing for me. Um, this past week we went on a double date. Meaning, the husband and I went out, and, and the husband's wife and my wife went out a double date. And so the husband and I, we, we ate, and we played basketball. The wives, they went and you know, ate dinner, and they talked. And then they went to have coffee to talk even more. <laughs> For like four or five hours, they just talked. And that's all they did, and, they were, and she was so happy. 
I mean, if I did that, I'd be somewhat bummed if I talked all night. But she's encouraged by that. Well, we're very different, men and women, uh, equally sinful, but just different in, in terms of how we are tempted into sin. Well, let's look at men first. Uh, men are primarily tempted through what we see, through our eyesight, through our vision. Um, Job was a righteous man, blameless before God, man who feared God. And he said in Job 31.1, I have covenanted with my eyes not to gaze at a virgin lustfully. He made a promise with his eyes. Why with his eyes? Because his eyes were a source of temptation. His eyes were often straying, often wandering, and was tempting him to gaze upon a virgin lustfully. And so he had to covenant with his eyes not to do that. <coughs> David said in Psalm 103, 2 and 3, I will walk with integrity of heart within my house. I will not set before my eyes anything that is worthless. Right. So in my own house, before my own family, I will walk with integrity. Meaning there will be no duplicity in terms of how I walk in public and how I walk in private. In the privacy of my own home, I will maintain integrity. And the foremost thing is what I set before my eyes. I will not set any evil, worthless, corrupt, sinful thing before my eyes. Because that is how men are tempted. And the world knows this. The world knows that the heart of a guy's temptation to lust is often through his sight. That is why pornography is so rampant. That is why advertisers use sex and sensuality and uh, even near pornographic images to sell their products because they know that if they get a body part and put it near a car, put it near a, a gadget, a, a, a cell phone, or an iPod, men are apt to look at that advertisement and consider purchasing the product. This temptation of, uh, of lusting through our eyes is intensified and exacerbated because of the world we live in. We live in a society and a culture that is obsessed with sex. It is, it is ludicrous how you know you watch a football game and you can't you can't uh, be, you have to be confronted with sexual images and sexual advertisements and sex literally sexual images on the field. Uh, someone said that an average television viewer will view fourteen thousand references to sex in the course of one year. You know, and TV shows like. You know, at the store, we have a TV, and we have it on uh, for customers and such. And, you know, hours when students come home from school, the worst shows are on at that time. As I'm flipping to the channels, all those dating shows and all those sinful shows are on. And it's amazing what they show on TV these days. And one of the top-rated shows is, I guess, Desperate Housewives and Sex in the City, and South Park, and, and, and Sports Magazine. What is the number one issue, a selling issue in Sports Illustrated every year? What is it? It's not when they bring out the rankings of top ten college football teams, is it? 
It's not when the playoffs start for NBA or the World Series Championship <coughs> is determined. It is the swimsuit issue, the number one selling issue for Sports Illustrated. And modern technology has been used to multiply and increase the temptation of sexual sin. Um, someone has said that cyber sex or, or online pornography is the crack cocaine of sexual addiction. Dr. Robert Weiss and a Sexual Recovery Institute in the Washington Times, January 26, 2000. As of July 2003, there were over 260 million pages of pornography online. 260 million pages of pornography online. That's an increase of 1,800% since 1998. About 7% of all online um, um, web pages is pornography. Americans rent upwards of 800 million pornographic videos and DVDs a year. Nearly one in five of all rentals is a pornographic video. Hollywood produces 400 feature films a year. The porn industry churns out 11,000 movies a year, grossing more than $4 billion a year. That's more than the National Football League. The porn industry makes more money than the NFL. Someone enslaved to internet pornography wrote this letter. Quote, I don't know who I am anymore. I am so scared. I do what I know is wrong. I have tried to stop. I really have. I have cried and sobbed at night. I have prayed and kept journals. I have read books. I am honestly at a loss. I love God, but I cannot continue to ask for forgiveness over and over and over for the same thing. I know I need help, but I don't know how to get it. I know that God has so much more planned for my life than this. But this sin continues to conquer me. Can you relate, guys? Can you relate to this letter? Is this a foreign thing for you or a common struggle that rages in your heart? For men, sexual impurity, in terms of what we see, is our first and foremost struggle. Now, for the women, very different. Women don't struggle with this. And because of this, they think they don't struggle with impurity at all. For women, they're not tempted by what they see. And, uh, you know, I don't know how detailed to get into this uh, topic of sexual sin. I mentioned a few things to my wife. She said, you can't say that. Don't say that. That's too much. So I'm trying to find the line where it's PG-13 but not rated R. So uh, keep praying for, my, for me that I would have wisdom and discernment. But, um, you know, this is not, not in my notes. I'm just going to say it. And... Uh, uh, you know, Dennis Prager was talking years ago about how the trigger for men, how it's a visual. And a guy called in, a professor uh, at a university who wrote a book on how women are tempted in the same way. And he cited Playgirl magazine. And Prager shot back, that is ludicrous. A majority of those who purchase Playgirl magazine are gay men. And the other guy couldn't say anything. He hung up. Right? You can't argue with that. And that's true. You know, men were tempted by seeing a body part. 
even separated from my head, separated from any other body part, we see a body part and that can tempt us and lead us to sin. But a woman, they see a hairy leg or they see a, a, a shoulder or an arm, right? Women, you know, 90% of 99% does nothing for you. Uh, so how are women tempted in this area? Women are tempted... So men are tempted to idolize women. Women are tempted to be idols. Women are tempted to be lusted after. They want to be pursued. They want to be chased. It is stimulating for them. It boosts their ego. It boosts their pride. So women, the way they dress, the way they interact with men, the way they say things, do things, what they reveal... The temptation is because they want to be chased. They want to be pursued. They want to be noticed and looked at. This is what Al Mohler, president of Southern Seminary, said, quite insightful. Quote, men are tempted to give themselves to pornography. Women are tempted to give themselves to pornography, to be in pornography, to be the object of pornography, to be looked at. One photographer said, it is amazing what women will do if you just point a camera at them. They will do things for you that they would never do without the camera. Joshua Harris, if you're a woman, you don't have to pose for a picture or star in a pornographic movie to commit pornography. When you dress and behave in a way that is designed primarily to arouse sexual desire in men, you're committing pornography with your life. A married woman wrote the following, I believe the root of women's struggle with lust is that we want to dominate men, control them, and manipulate them through sexual appeal. If a couple is driving down the road and they both see a very seductive advertisement, they can both be tempted toward lust, but in a different way, but in different ways. The man might be tempted toward sexual pleasure with the woman in the ad, but the woman wants to look like the woman in the ad because we know what men want. A woman named Josie in one of the books said, there is a degree of power in seduction, even though it is short-lived and false. Women know we have the ability to make a man do what we want by dressing or acting in a certain way. So for guys, sex is the end. Right? We do everything for that pursuit, and sex, that's, that's the, the pursuit is over. For women, sex is a means to another end. They use sex and, and, and temptation to be idolized, to get control, to get influence, to feed their pride, to raise their self-esteem. So, immorality, impurity, temptation is common to men and women. It's just different in how it affects us and how it tempts us. The way out, the cure, um, is of course the Word of God. The Word of God delivers us from this sin and temptation. We want to just look at two texts this morning. We're launching from John 17:17, 17, 17, but we'll go to Ephesians 5. Turn with me to Ephesians 5. Christ prayed for our sanctification. 
and Paul in Ephesians 5 highlights to us practically what that looks like. And he raises and he sets the right standard for how believers are to conduct themselves as ones who have been set apart by Jesus Christ. Ephesians 5.3 But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking which are out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. In verse 3, the Apostle Paul starts with naming three sins. The first term that he uses is sexual immorality. The Greek word is porneia, from where we get pornography. It refers to all sexual sins. The second term is impurity. It's a more general term than porneia. Akatharsia refers to anything that is unclean, anything that is filthy. Our Lord used this word to describe the rottenness of decaying bodies in the tomb. Matthew 23:27. The other ten times this word is used in the New Testament, it is always associated with sexual sin. Sexual sin is considered filthy. It refers to immoral thoughts, passions, ideas, fantasies, and every other form of sexual corruption. The third term is very interesting and uh, important for us to note uh, as we look at latter verses. The third term is covetousness. Other versions have greed. It is not just general greed. Greed as we understand it. It's often greed for money. It is the idea of an insatiable, avarious desire for more impurity. Someone who is not satisfied with just simple immorality, simple impurity. They have an indulgent appetite for more and more um, things that are impure. Go back one chapter in verse 19. Talking about... Gentiles who walk in the futility of their minds. Verse 19, they have become callous. They have given themselves up to sensuality. They are greedy, same word. They are insatiable in their desire to practice every kind of impurity. NIV says they have a continual lust for more. There's an insight here, and I think Paul somewhat ties that what feeds uh, pornea, what feeds impurity, is often um, covetousness, or the other, other side of the coin, discontentment. Discontentment feeds impurity, feeds immorality, and we'll see the cure of that in verse 4. Paul goes on, 
decent in any way, uh, should not even be mentioned, even be named among Christians as is proper among saints. Saints are literally holy ones. Men and women set apart by Jesus Christ who are sanctified, who are growing in sanctification. So such sins cannot be justified or tolerated by believers. Those who are holy must have nothing to do with those things which are unholy. So much so that even in our speech it is out of place. Verse 4, No filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking. These are also out of place for believers. But instead, verse 4, Let there be thanksgiving. Let there be thanksgiving. So covetousness is what drives the pursuit of unclean behavior. And the opposite is true. This craving for lust can be conquered by a new and more powerful affection of thanksgiving. Gratitude. Fornication and purity are driven by covetousness. Covetousness is a deep-seated discontentment that dominates your life and even leads you to go against the will of God. But if you're overflowing with thanksgiving, then you're not driven by discontentment that leads you to such sins. John Pipe, Pastor John Piper in his sermon on Ephesians 5 said this, quote, Gratitude is what you feel when you believe God is for you and not against you. It's what you feel when you believe that He gives you only what is good for you and withholds no good thing, single or married. It's what you feel when you trust Him, that the tragedies of your life are not evidences of His meanness or His incompetence, but rather that they are the discipline of a loving Father who values your holiness above your fleeting worldly happiness." You go down a few verses to verse 20. Paul goes so far as to say, Always and for everything give thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God the Father. Do we see that? I've seen that in the, in the church, in ministry in the church. How discontentment can be something that drives a person to do, commit all sorts of sins and you... You confront that sin, you shepherd his or her heart, and you go into the person's soul and you find out what is driving that seed is at the core, they're not thankful. They're ungrateful. They're discontent. Whether it's in their marriage, or their singlehood, or with their lot in life, their stage in life, or with their job, or ministry, or they're discontent about something, and it causes them to be deceived, to think that selfishness is justified. That God owes them something because they've been dealt the raw hand and it causes them to go astray. And they're blind to the gross sins that they're committing and the affront to a holy God it is. The cure of that is gratitude, thanksgiving, going to the basic of gifts that God has given to us. Salvation, forgiveness of sins, indwelling Holy Spirit, looking at the church, looking at our family, looking at our friends, looking at the spiritual gifts that He has given us, 
and having a heart of thanksgiving. And that causes us. What does that cause us? causes the heart to obey God all the more rather than rebel against Him. We know that Paul had stated this over and over again the church at Ephesus because in verse 5 he says, you are sure of this. Why are they sure? Why are they certain? Because he had taught them these truths many times while he pastored among them. No doubt other pastors have reinforced this truth that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Paul says, this you know with certainty. There should be no doubt or no confusion in your minds because it is not anything new. God does not tolerate sin. Sin has no place in God's kingdom and sin has no place in Christ's body. Those three terms that he uses in verse 5 are the same basic Greek words as verse 3. He says, these are the sins that ensnare man and in the world. But no believer, no true Christian has a pattern of pornea, pattern of impurity. And has a consistent pattern of discontentment, covetousness, and greed. Paul says, you can be sure of this. The kingdom of, of Christ and God refers to the sphere of salvation, the true church, those who are known by Christ and those who know Christ. Those who are true believers no longer have a habitual practice of such sins. He had said this in 1 Corinthians 6, 9, and 10. 1 Corinthians 6, 9, and 10. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Now, why is he saying this? Because there are so many believers, professing believers, who have resigned to their temptation. They fought for a few hours, a few days, a few weeks, a few months, a few years. They found the fight too, too difficult. So they have given in to their flesh. And instead of confronting their flesh with the Word of God, they're justifying it by saying that what you do in the flesh is of no consequence. Long as you have a good heart before Christ, long as you simply believe in Christ, you are saved. And how you conduct yourself in, in, the, in the world has no bearing on your faith in Christ or your position in Christ. So not only are they practicing these sins, they're boasting about it, saying that they're saved by faith alone. And Paul is saying, no, that is far from the truth. Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Men and women who are marked by these things, who are characterized by these things, do not, are not true children of God. You know, you have to qualify this because we're so prone to the extremes and misunderstandings. We're not saying Christians are sinless. First uh, John 1.8, if anyone says he, is not, he has no sin, he is a liar. He is deceived. 
First John 1 John 1.9, next verse. If we confess our sins, He's faithful and just and purifies us from all righteousness. We all struggle with sin. But believers are not characterized by sin. We are characterized by a life of growing holiness with moments of struggling with sin. And even like Peter denying the Lord. But like he went outside and wept bitterly over his sins, believers are characterized by remorse over sin and repentance. But men and women who have a flippant attitude towards holiness and they are marked by such unrighteousness, Paul says, do not be deceived. No matter what they may claim, a life dominated by such sins is damned to hell. People will try to deny that, but Paul warns them not to listen to them. And so in Ephesians 5, 6, Paul says, let no one deceive you with these empty words. Empty words. Because, for it is because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. And a final warning, Paul says in verse 8, therefore, do not associate with them. And he's talking about professing believers. Anyone who professes to be a believer, if their lives are characterized by morality, impurity, and covetousness, separate yourself. Non-believers, you love them. Right? We are in this world. We are sent into this world. We are to go to, the gospel, go to them with the gospel and live and dwell among them and share our lives if they're non-believers. If they profess to be Christians, then we are to separate ourselves, not associate with them, not partner with them. This is for all of us who are struggling to attain practical sanctification. This is the standard of the Bible. It's not my standard. It's not Cornerstone Bible Church's standard. All these fundamentalists, these Bible churches, they're, they're so legalistic, they're so Pharisaic in their approach to Christianity. You know, it's not my standard. My standard is far lower. The standard is what God has given to us in His Bible. One other passage I want to point to and just go through briefly together and then we'll spend a bulk of our time in application on how we can have practical sanctification in this area. Turn with me to 1 Thessalonians 4, 3 through 7. 1 Thessalonians 4, 3 through 7. And Ephesians 5, I think it's direct application to singles. 1 Thessalonians 4, here's an, here we have applications to those who are dating, thinking about dating, and for those who are married. 1 Thessalonians 4, 3 through 7. We had referenced this verse before in our study of John 17, verse 3. This is the will of God, your sanctification. What does that mean? It's that we abstain from sexual immorality, that at all costs, because this is God's will for us, that we avoid, hold back, keep off, we are distant from sexual sin. It's in the middle voice, meaning we hold oneself. We're not dependent upon others to do it for us. It is our responsibility. I can't live the Christian life for you. I can't sanctify you. And you can't live the Christian life for me. You're not responsible for my sanctification. We're all running the Christian race together, but individually. 
So it is your responsibility to hold yourself back from impurity as is my individual responsibility before God to hold myself back from sexual immorality. That we avoid pornea, that word again. A broad term that includes all forms of illegitimate sexual practices. The Christian is responsible to avoid all these. And then he goes on, verse 4, that each one of you, and in my version it says, know how to control his own body in holiness and honor. And this, there's a great amount of debate concerning how to translate verse 4. The the majority of translations translated this way, that each person uh, controls his own body in holiness and honor. It's the idea of self-control, self-discipline, and don't give yourself to uh, sexual temptations. The other uh, translation, other view is that uh, each one of you learn how to acquire a wife in holiness and honor. How to pursue. It's the idea of courtship, idea of dating. And because it's continual, even in marriage as well. And second hour, in our Pillars Fellowship, we'll talk more about this. But there's a debate. What does it mean here? In the original language, the Greek word, katalmai, the first meaning is acquire. It means to gain. Not the idea of control. And just like 1 Peter 3, a vessel is used as a person, yourself or someone else. So in 1 Peter 3, live with your wife in an understanding way as a vessel who is weaker than you. It's a weaker vessel. So that's the parallel here. So I believe the right way to translate this, understand verse 4 is, that each of you, especially the men, we learn how to acquire a wife, pursue a wife in holiness and honor. It's the idea of dating, the idea of marriage, that we try to uh, seek a wife for ourselves if you're single, not the way the world does. How does the, how does the world how to seek a wife. It's all through sensuality. It's all through lust. It's all through enticement. It's all through seduction. They play this game. Right? And it's all emotional and passion and all about romance and you try to almost manipulate a person and gain a wife. That's not how believers view dating and that's not how Christian men view Christian women. We pursue, you are to pursue them in honor, in dignity, valuing them as heirs of Christ, as possessors of salvation, as co-heirs with Christ, right, for whom Christ died for. And we are to pursue them in holiness, seeking their sanctification, seeking that they would grow in Christ. That is the heart. Right? not like the world who do not know God. Three reasons why Paul says in verses 6 through 8, this must be avoided. Verse 6, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter. Right? Because you date someone and 
he, he did not end up marrying her, and she uh, she is married to someone else in the future. You have defrauded him. You have defrauded your brother, because if you were involved in things of sexual intimacy, that is reserved only for marriage. That is something that is between a husband and wife. But if you are involved with her in that realm of intimacy, then you've taken from him, you've stole from him what rightfully belongs to him. If she stays single, then you're defrauding Christ because she is the bride of Christ. Paul says, you're not to defraud your brother in this way because... The Lord is an avenger in all these things. So God takes sanctification seriously and He takes it personally, especially in terms of the purity of the women, of single women. Sexual sin is in a special category in God's heart. And God says, I will not be mocked. I will be the avenger in all these things. Secondly, because God has called us not to impurity, our calling is not to sin, but it's towards purity. Verse 7 and verse 8. Therefore, anyone who disregards this, disregards not man, but God who gives His Holy Spirit to you. You're rejecting the Holy Spirit, and you're rejecting God if you reject this command. So there's just so much to say about this area of sexual sin, lust, and temptation that cannot be said fully in one sermon. But we've done, you know, for, for several weeks of studying sanctification, I want to spend the remaining time just looking at applications on how you and I can practic- practically um, pursue holiness and attain it in our lives. First of all, uh, if you want practical sanctification, it costs. You have to pay. You have to pay a price. And the first thing you have to pay is self-righteousness. First thing you have to uh, give up is any inkling of self-righteousness that you have in this area where you say, wow, man, Pastor James, great, preach this because I know this guy sitting next to me, man, I've seen his DVD collection. He needs to hear this. Or this girl, man, she's been struggling with, you know, being wanting, wanting to be an idol. She needs to hear this. For, for me, man, I'm so holy and righteous and I'm obedient. And I can, I'll never right, do these kind of images. I never struggle with this. And I'll never fall prey to such temptations in dating. And, you know, when I court, when I date, it'll be absolute purity, absolute holiness and honor. You don't have to worry about me. Well, if you want practical sanctification, you need to give that up. Right. You need to uh, set aside any confidence in the flesh. Set aside judging others and looking down on others because of their weaknesses in this area. You know, another illustration I, I don't know if I should share or not, but right, I'll edit it later if it's not good. Talked to a brother, not from our church, and he was saying to me, uh, he was rebuking all his friends for sexual sin, for their compromise in this area. He's a Christian. Until he started dating. And they were getting involved physically. And the only thing that stopped them from premarital sex was his girlfriend. She stopped him physically. 
were not for that, he would have went through it right, and committed premarital sex. He said previously he was very boastful about his purity and he saw that he was a sinner like all men and that temptation was real, temptation was powerful. Right. We need to give up presumptuousness, thinking that you're above a certain sin, that you can be alone with women or you can be alone with men, right? you can stay out late and you know, be parked in a, you know, hills of uh, city of orange and because you're so righteous you won't be tempted you need to give up such attitudes secondly um, understand the patience of God and grace of God given to you God saved you God saved me not because we are righteous but because we are unrighteous the Bible says, but sin abounds, grace superabounds. The Bible says that God has forgiven us of all our iniquities, not 95%, not 90%. The Bible teaches us that God honors a humble heart, not a, not a perfect heart. Right. Jerry Bridges said, every day of our Christian experience should be a day of relating to God on the basis of His grace alone. So the way we relate to Christ is not, God, this is what I've done for you. Right? This is what I deserve from you. This is what I've earned. This is what I've gained. No, the basis of our relationship every day is your grace, your kindness, your patience, your mercy towards me. Were it not for your grace, I could not stand before you. He continues, your worst days are never so bad that you are beyond the reach of God's grace. Remember that. And your best days are never so good that you are beyond the need of God's grace. Worst days, you're never beyond the reach of God's grace. In your best days, you're never beyond the need for God's grace. Third application, um, you personally um, taste the beauty of a holy life. Christian life is not, don't look at that. Don't think that. I mean, there is an element of self-discipline and self-control. But we're not driven by a list of do's and don'ts. That's not the Christian life. We're not driven by a rod. We are compelled by the beauty and the, and the, and the uh, uh, attractiveness of practical holiness in our lives. John Piper in Future Grace said, We must fight fire with fire. The fire of lust pleasures must be fought with the fire of God's pleasures. If we try to fight the fire of lust with prohibitions and threats alone, even the terrible warnings of Jesus, we will fail. We must fight it with a massive promise of superior happiness. We must swallow up the little flicker of lust pleasure and the conflagration of holy satisfaction. Let me illustrate this years ago when I was in college, and I still somewhat like it. You know, I grew up with uh, Spam and Rice. And I like, I'm raw Spam at that. I remember when I was in college, I was living with a roommate, and he started cooking Spam. I'm like, what are you doing? You're ruining it, brother. Right? Don't fry that thing. You just eat it raw. Give me a spoon right out of the can. So, uh, you try it sometime. You, know, you might like it. Anyway, we're, our roommates love California rolls. So we would, you know, often gather together, and they would bring avocados from their parents' backyard, 
and they would get fake crab and rice and seaweed and all that good stuff and make California rolls and soy sauce and, and wasabi and, and they would eat it. I mean, like, I had a bun. I'm like, man, that's gross. I don't want that. So I would, you know, go to, go to the kitchen and take out a can of Spam and kimchi and I would cut it up in front of them and while they're eating California rolls, I would eat my Spam, you know, sushi, right? And I would just eat it with joy. And they would, they would like, look at me, what's wrong with you? You're sick, you're gross. And they would try to force California rolls on me. And more they forced it upon me, more I didn't want California rolls, more I wanted my large Spam roll. Right? <laughs> Years later, by the grace of God, somehow I got reintroduced to California rolls. And wow, it's so good. Right? So delicious. Now look at that spam roll. What was I thinking? Right? So cheesy illustration. But a, a, you know, a, a taste, a lust for something more tasty, I drowned out my lust for spam. Right? So do we see that? When we lust after these sensual images, uh, we're tempted by uh, lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and part of that in this world that it's because our appetite is not too great, it's too small, it's too little. Our taste, our appetite is not strong enough. We need to fight fire with fire. We need to have more lust, greater lust. But for the thing that truly satisfies, that's truly sweet, which is a practical holy life practical sanctification, a life that knows God, enjoys God, and is consecrated to serving Him. That is why Pascal said, the serene beauty of a holy life is the most powerful influence in the world next to the power of God. David Brainerd, oh for holiness, oh for more of God in my soul, oh this pleasing pain, it makes my soul press after God. C.S. Lewis, how little people know who think that holiness is dull. When one meets the real thing, it is irresistible. It is not a list of do's and don'ts. It's a list of do's. Because of a superior satisfaction in God, we turn aside from these shallow appetites, shallow lusts. Thirdly, uh, be sensitive to lust triggers. Things in your life that trigger your temptations and at all costs avoid these things. Stay away from temptations. Richard Baxter, keep as far as you can, keep away as far as you can from those temptations that feed and strengthen the sins which you would overcome. Lay siege to your sins and starve them out by keeping away the food and fuel which is their maintenance in life. Find out, you know, what tempts you? Is it TV? Then get rid of it. Right? Put it in the garage. Right? Put it, put it away. Box it up. Sell it on eBay. Throw it away. Is it internet access? Right? Is it online internet? Well, see, James, I need to have internet at home. Well, then put it in the living room. Put it in the kitchen. Right? Put it, put it next to your wife. Or put it right in the front porch. Right? I mean, knowing that that triggers you. Right? Is it a magazine stand at a certain uh, 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 a market? Well, don't go to that market. Right? Knowing that you'll be tempted when you walk next to it. Is it when you go rent videos? Send your wife right, to rent videos instead of going yourself. Right? For women, 
what tempts you to want to be uh, chased after, want to be lusted? Is it like soap operas? Is it cosmetology? I'm just you know, reaching here, but is it Cosmo magazine or Seventeen or Vogue magazine? You read those articles and those ads, you go, wow, look at her you know, hair, look at her face. Only if I had that figure, only if I had those eyes, then men would love me, men would you know, care for me, right? If those things, then, then, you know, don't watch soap operas. Don't watch those programs. Don't watch those movies. Avoid as much as possible and reasonable the sights and situations that arouse unfitting desire. Number four. Move your life to the front yard. Move your life to the front yard. Our home, we have a backyard. Nobody sees it except for you guys come over and play ping pong with us. So, and you know, we don't really care. So our backyard is a mess. Our plants are dying. It's just dirt. But I don't want to spend money on that. I'd rather spend money on like ministry or missions. I don't want to spend money on our backyard. So now, all we do there is, you know, play ping pong, right? But our, we just got a church home to rent to use as our meeting space. What our church home? They've got two, they've got a front yard and it's, and it's grass. So Jason and I are, are there constantly watering that thing and caring for that yard. Why? Because it's in the front yard. Everybody looks at it. All our neighbors want to be a good testimony. So there's instant accountability with our front yard. Right? So likewise with our lives. Move your life into open space. Right? Don't hide anything in your life. Don't isolate yourself. Don't separate yourself. Don't have secret time where your wife doesn't know what you're doing. You know, you're just always missing for a few hours in a day, once a week. You have just secret time, secret life, secret space. You're singles as well. You're out of accountability, out of relationship. You live life and you just open up areas you want to open up. No, move your life to the forefront and front and open your life to everybody. And let everybody see... Your, your backyard. And that's where accountability starts. This is my backyard. This is who I am. This is my struggles. This is, you know, my, my level of sanctification. And it's humiliating. It's difficult. Embarrassing maybe. But then, you, that humiliation, embarrassment, that accountability will help you to take care of your backyard by putting it to the front. Number five, three more. So MBA has a three-second violation in the lane. You're in the lane, three seconds, it's a foul. Have a three-second rule for lustful thoughts, for sinful thoughts. Say it with the authority of Christ, in the name of Jesus Christ, no. Give it more, no more unopposed time than three seconds. As Owen said, be killing sin or sin will kill you. You know, Spurgeon said, you can't be faulted for a bird dropping his waist on you, but you can be faulted if the bird lays on top of your head and and starts a nest. That's the same thing with lustful thoughts. We we all, especially men, we see images and we see things that tempt us. You fight that in three seconds. And I can say, if you say that, you're, you're blameless. You're above reproach in my eyes. Right? You're not. Right? But if you 
uh, record that image, right? You TiVo that and you rewind it and you just see every angle and see it again and again. And that's sin, brother. Right. Three second rule. Number six, um, I'm talking to the guys here. And a lot of guys, they want this personal accountability specifically because of this sin, because of impurity and pornea. Right? You know what you're um, um, wanting? You're wanting to be married. Right? That's the real desire. Another guy can't give you that kind of accountability. If you're struggling with lust to the point where you want other men to help you, really what you need is a wife. Right? 1 Corinthians 7, because of sin, if you're burning in your, in your heart, better to marry so for guys who are struggling, get married. Get married early. I don't know if I should share this or not, but a guy who was 27, 28, and he didn't have to give the celibacy. If you have to give the celibacy, I met a guy in Kazakhstan that gives celibacy. He has no struggles at all. He's not like wanting accountability, you know, wanting prayer partnership. Can you meet with me? No, he's like, you know, he's the gift of celibacy, and, and he wishes all men are like, like him. But I had to talk to a guy who was 27, 28, doesn't have the gift, and yet he's like, I'm okay if I don't get married for another year, you know, several years. And I was like, I'm sorry, brother, but I was angry. I was upset. What are you talking about? Right? You know, it's, the singleness is not a gift. Celibacy is the gift. And Paul says, I wish all men were I am. Not single, but gift of celibacy. I wish all men had this gift. But if you don't have it, Really, the only God-given protection, true protection, is marriage. So, get married. You know, I, I, I wrestle with whether to say this or not, but Joshua Harris says this in his book, not even a hint. So, you know, whether I confirm him or he confirms me, either way, we both agree, if you're burning with this, um, get married, okay? Premarital starting in January. <laughs> Okay. Finally, fight for your life. You gotta fight for sanctification. Holiness is not easily acquired. You gotta fight, fight for it, even if it means your life. You know, Fernando Vargas said, "Even if I have to die in the ring, right? I'm gonna, I'm gonna fight and I'm gonna go all out." Man, I like that. You know, boxing illustration. People thought it was crazy, maybe a little crazy. But in terms of holiness, sanctification, we should have that approach. Even if it means my life. Even if it means gouging out my eyes. Even if it means cutting off my right arm. Cutting off my legs. What is absolutely necessary is my holiness, my sanctification. It's not preserving my life. Now I'm fighting too. Now I'm a young pastor. You know, men godlier than me. Men who are more um, knowledgeable about the Bible than me. Men who are raised by pastors and reared in Christian homes, they've fallen and disqualified themselves because of sexual sin. So I'm just starting out. I'm, I'm fighting. I'm just, just, you know, overwhelmed with the fight. Let us fight together so that we might be holy as our God is holy.
God, we so often want to run away from this world riddled with sin. Sometimes we want to go into a monastery or go to a deserted island or go to the desert and be by ourselves. But Lord, you did not send us to this world to be apart from the world. You sent us to be separate but in terms of sin, but you sent us into this temptation-riddled world. We are to live the Christian life in the reality of the corrupt world we live in. Help us to know that the fight is internal. It's not external. The fight is in our hearts. And our only weapon is the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Our defensive uh, armament is a helmet of salvation, breastplate of righteousness, belt of truth, feet fitted with the readiness of the gospel, shield of faith which extinguishes the flaming arrows of the evil one. Lord, putting on the full armor of God, may we fight this fight with courage and valor, insistent that we will not give up until our death or until your return. O Lord, help us to trust in you for our sanctification, knowing that you are the author of it and you are the perfecter, that your will will be done in our lives, that we cannot do anything to undo your will that you are sovereign in all your ways. Help us to trust in you. Help us to know your grace and your patience. Therefore, help us, Lord, to obey faithfully day in and day out. I pray for the many here that are secretly battling, struggling, and losing in their fight against sexual temptations. Oh, Lord, help them to know that no sin is Uh, come to them except what is common to man and God that you are faithful that you are that you have and will provide a way out and that way out is the word of God Lord help them and help me to be humble and just cry out to you in prayer knowing that you hear our prayers and because our sanctification is your will you will do it that you will do whatever it takes to make us holy in Jesus name Amen